Stevie, the accidental academic. Yeah. Talk me through that. <laughs> um, if you'd said to me when I was 20, what's your life going to pan out like? It would never have involved teaching anybody anything. Um, I'd gone through, I'd been a programmer, I'd been a system designer, I'd gone through all of that, led teams, ran the Year 2000 project, had great fun, done all sorts of projects. The chance came up for voluntary redundancy, jumped at it. I was just at that point, I was 39, I was bored, I needed a new challenge. Um, so I went off to, to Edinburgh Napier to do my MBA, which was always in the back of my head mm. that I wanted to do that because I didn't have a management qualification. And I had a brilliant year, as you can imagine, studying at that age. I would make it, if I could pass a lot, it would be to give everybody a year, the year they turn 40, to do something fun. And, you know, fund education for folk at that stage, because you get way more out of it. Yeah. And as I got to the end of my, my kind of time, I was talking to some of my, my lecturers, and I said, so what are you going to do next? No idea. Mm. I literally had no idea. I didn't want to go back into the IT world. I didn't want to go back into the finance world. If I was going to do that, I would have just gone straight into that yeah. without taking the year out. And some of them started to say, oh, but you could stay here. And I went, do what? I teach. Nah. That, that's that's not there. And, and it, it kind of, more and more people said that to me. And then I started to think, well, what have I seen? What have I, what's it been like? And I kind of thought, eh, maybe I could do better. Um, so the chance came up on zero hours contract, a couple hours a week, absolute gamble. Had no idea, honestly had no idea what I was doing. Um, took my first class at about five minutes notice because we got to, got to a room which has a partition down it. Mm -hmm. And my colleague went, oh, we could we'd get the guys to come and open that. And, no, no, never mind. She says, I'll go in there. I'll take half of them and I'll do half the class. You take the other half and we'll swap. <laughs> and I'm like, okay. And that was my introduction that to teaching. Did, you didn't go to university after school or anything like that, no? I went to college. I went to Edinburgh, um, Napier College of Commerce and Technology, as right. it was in the mid-80s. Because kids who grew up where I grew up didn't really go to university mm -hmm. unless they were a lot smarter than me. <laughs> um, and so I'd gone to college, kind of scraped my way through it, wasn't a good student. I didn't have any study skills. I think it's maybe why I'm quite good at what I do now is because I understand what it is to be 18, 19 and not have study mm -hmm. skills. Um, so I'd done that, but I'd, because I'd moved from a technical, so I was a degree in computing, because I'd moved from the technical part to the people part, I was conscious that I didn't really have any any education in this. Mm. And I was doing stuff that I was making up. I had the company paid it for me to do it, I would have done it before. Yeah. But that that wasn't that just wasn't open. So the route opened up and it was a ten minute discussion with my wife that that's that's what I'm gonna do. When you look at like yourself when you were leaving school or even going through that college yeah what was it that you missed at that point in your life where you didn't really enjoy like academia or further education to where when you were 39 40 to getting into that opportunity again 
I think I've been I've been probably recognised as bright at primary school. Got into secondary school, Portobello High, nineteen seventy eight. Two and a half thousand kids in the school. It was a horrible environment. You Frank really, you, you were just kept your head down. Yeah. You know, you really just. I, now I came out with incredible social skills, and I, I'll, I'll give them. And I was taught by a few brilliant people who, looking back, probably did shape me a little bit. Um. But I, I, I just didn't know where I was going. I didn't know what I wanted to do. Everybody seemed to think that I should know what I, what I wanted to do. Um, so I was just kind of coasting. I ended up doing a computing degree because I thought I could get a job at the end of it. And it wasn't until I was in my early 20s in the workplace, getting hammered by a couple of guys that I worked with who I have nothing but respect for them yeah. because of... They realised what I was capable of, and they basically said, "No, you give us that, or we don't want you here." Okay. Um, so they basically pushed my standard, and and, made, and that was the point I realised I'm actually quite good at this, and probably for the first time in my life, I discovered that I was actually good at what I did. Yeah. Yeah. So I think in, in some respects, it wasn't the education part of it; it was I hadn't really known what I was any good at. So you get to 39 and it kind of grated on me a little bit. What could I have done if it worked? Because basically I scraped through because I didn't work. I know why I scraped through. I was lazy. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I I, I was was an 18, 19 year old guy. It was inherently lazy. Yeah. Um, So the, the older version of me knew how to work. And kind of thought, well, if I take that approach yeah. and put it into my studies, what can I achieve? I had no idea if I could achieve it or not. That's interesting because that's one of the next questions I was going to ask is by being a mature student yeah. as such in that environment, where, I mean, was it a case of you were in a university, uh, you know, in lecture halls surrounded by younger people or were there other people similar to your own situation? I, I, because it was an MBA, they were they were older. Yeah. Um, but I had probably five years on the closest yeah. and 10, possibly more on most of them. Mm. And I had a, a range of work experiences through various jobs that I'd done when I was going through college that they just didn't have. So I had a, a level of experience that, that they just didn't have. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't like going back and doing an undergrad degree and everybody's 18, 19. Yeah. They were older than that, but I was closer in age to my lecturers, which is probably why I spent more time drinking coffee with them than with the people <laughs> I was in class with. That's interesting. So you're going back to your people skills that you said you picked up at school. At school. What kind of people skills where you where you talking about there and and how do you think they equipped you and, and even to a point would you say that when you went into the working environment how much of it was getting through with those people skills and how much was it getting through with that qualification you got at the college i think my people skills took me a long way mm-hmm. um i did have an ability to solve problems yeah uh, which which helped me in in the kind of technical part of it. 
but that was more I did a year in placement and I learned more in my year in placement than I did three years in the classroom because I had to work yeah but the thing about like and as I say I mean two and a half thousand kids in Porty and and those are from you know the posh houses at the job by end of Porty to the council houses mm. where I grew up yeah. and, and, and beyond I had folk whose mums and dads had good jobs and I had folk that I was with friends with whose parents didn't have a job yeah so you begin to learn to understand that well actually here's this mass of people where are you from and what your parents are like it's got nothing to do with it mm. and I mean part of it was figuring out who you could trust mm. who you couldn't um who was decent regardless of where they came from who wasn't regardless of where they came from and avoiding the people who were dangerous yeah <laughs> um, I mean, it, it, some of it was just self-preservation. Yeah. And I think when you take those skills into the workplace, there's an awful lot that actually makes life a lot easier. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it, you learn to get on with people. Were, were you uh, were you a good communicator at a young age, or did you have to work at communicating? I, I think I must have been, because when I was. 16, um, one of my English teacher who had a massive impact on me, my higher English teacher, a woman called Mrs. Main, um, she was the only teacher that I had who shouted at me and called me lazy. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was right. She discovered I could write and pushed me to do that, but she got me involved and some of my friends involved in stage crew work. Okay. And I loved that because it was practical. And fairly quickly, the guy who was in charge of it said I'm going away for I'm away for a wee while Stevie you're in charge he actually went three weeks before right. he came back so you were 16 at this point I was 16 right. and I was now in charge of my peers yeah and I'd love to know from him what did he see mm-hmm. because I, I don't looking back I don't think there was a I, random I, pit selection or was it no I, well no I think very very quickly I was able to get people to do what I needed them to do yeah um I asked people to do things although there's a way of asking that some of my students have pointed out. Um, you know, do things like the worst job is washing the paintbrushes. Yeah. Do that at least once a week. So people see you doing it before mm. you get home for lunch. So that when you say, Can you guys do the brushes? They never turn around and say, He never does it. Yeah. I don't know what I learned that. Right. So that kind of bit of it and my, my communication skills seem to have been there. Yeah. Yeah. Um and I don't really know where they come from. That's interesting. What, what about your parents' influence then? Because you mentioned your, your teacher there. I mean, we look at, when we look at this, you know, what were people's influences? What are people's influences? And from a young age, you're obviously talking about it, such a young age, 16, mm-hmm. and you're saying, where did where did this communication or, or sort of natural leadership come in uh, at that age? But So what about your parents at that time? Well, my mum's the eldest of seven. Right. Um, and she basically brought the other ones up. Um, funnily enough, my dad was the youngest of four. Okay. And the only boy. Uh, so he did nothing. <laughs> um, but he'd gone through, you know, his, his electrician apprenticeship, you know, l- learned to be a, an electrician in the shipyard. You have to learn skills quickly there. Uh, he did his national service. You have to learn skills quickly there. And yeah, my dad, he worked for the... the the housing department for most of his working life. He would 
coming around for saying he worked there, and he always said he was employed by them. He mm. didn't really feel like he worked, but he always got the people who were difficult in his team. Right. So I guess my dad had those skills. Yeah. And maybe I just learned an awful lot from him. I don't know. And then maybe naturally from your mother's side, with being the eldest of yes. seven, you know, having that—that's interesting. There. So you talked about this conversation you had with your wife, where it's like, do something, you know, new. Yeah. How tricky was that at an age? I mean, did you have children at that point? Yeah, I have two daughters um, at that stage. We've been 10 and 6. So, I mean, this is a a big junction in your life. It, it is, but um smartest person I've ever met is my wife. Mm. Um, and that, I was standing on anybody's desk and tell them that. Really? Um and she knew I was bored. Mm-hmm. She knew I was frustrated. She knew it was time for a change. And this this was a way out. Yeah. Take a year's salary and go away. That's not a hard decision. Well, that's true. When yeah. you're miserable. And she was delighted. So, I mean, it, it genuinely was less than 10 minutes. Wow. Right, there's three jobs at the moment. We're going down to two. And she's like, you'll be the one that's going. Well, that's what I was going to suggest. Yeah, we'll do that. Okay. And it, it was it was literally that simple. Then going into that uh, new environment, yep. so you've spent so long in the working environment, you've built yourself up, and now you're kind of becoming the new kid at school, quite yep. literally. Yeah. Did you feel vulnerable? Oh, horrible. Really? Um. Yeah, one of the problems of going back to education is you start to <laughs> you find your fifteen year old self again, and that that lack of study skills yeah. very quickly became a problem. Now I had a work ethic mm-hmm. that I didn't have when I was younger, and I was now smart enough to go, how do I do this? Um, and I remember having a really good conversation with um, a guy who taught me, a guy called Arthur Morrison, who was brilliant um both when i was a student and then when i started he was the the assistant dean and he used to sit with me long after class and the class finished at six o'clock right and we would quite often sit for a couple of hours after class talking day. and i remember i said i was kind of struggling a bit with what i was doing and he said to me so what do you want to do do you want to get high grades that you want to learn I want to do both. That he says is your problem. <laughs> okay. And and that was the point when I realised that actually I needed to split what I was doing. I failed. Funnily enough, I failed. The only part of my main BA that I failed was an, an exam in leadership. And when I went to see the module leader, he looked at me and went, "You can't possibly have failed this." And then when I looked at, it, I said, "Well, can I see my paper?" And when I looked at, it, I know exactly what I've done. I wrote what I wanted to write. I didn't answer the question. Listen, do, do you see that as, in your role now, a challenge in education? Because, you know, what is the what is the outcome that you're actually looking for? Are you looking for a, a, a degree with bells and whistles on it that says that, congratulations, you've been the top student? Yeah. Or are you looking at getting prepared enough to come out and be able to do what you need to do. It depends what level I'm teaching you at. So when I was teaching second years, 
I'm because your second year marks don't count towards your final degree. I've got a lot more scope right. to push it into ways which says no, that's not what I asked for. Okay, here's a marking criteria. Do it. Right. Um, here are the things that I need you to do. Don't just give me rubbish. This is what you've got to do. Now, when you get to fourth year, it's a bit different because they are scared because they're trying to figure out what's next. And also this counts. But if I've done my job properly before, they know how to use marking criteria. Okay, so, you know, right. So this is what I have to do. And I think, I think there's got to be two parts of education, which is, here's how I get my marks. Mm. And here's where I learn. And those two places aren't the same. It's interesting because your, your first example there about you know, marking scripts and things like that. I mean, how much of that is actually teaching somebody to pass a test? But then how much of it, and, and what, I mean, we're skipping ahead slightly here, but what I want, it, 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 I'm interested because you've come from two environments. Mm-hmm. You've come from the working environment, which some people would call the real world. Yep, I still do. And you've got it, yeah, <laughs> and, and, and you've moved into the education. Now, yeah. there are some people, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that, that, but there are some people who never leave education in their life. Yeah. They go to school, yep. university, and then doctorate, and then become lecturers. Yeah. Now, when when you moved into lecturing mm-hmm. from being a, a student, how hard was it for you to have to toe the educational line where you've actually got real life experiences, which could actually contradict something that you're maybe trying to teach somebody in a book? Uh, my favourite answer it depends. Right. <laughs> if it's somebody else's module, they've put the material together, I will toe the line. Yeah. Um but I will bring in my experience. I I tell stories. That that's that's who I am, that's how I work. Good. Um but where I put it together, if I don't think it's useful, it's not going in. Mm-hmm. Um I try not to say, well, here's the book that I'm gonna use. It's here are the stack of books that I'm going to use, mm-hmm. and I'm going to take a couple of pages from this. And there's only one page in that, and I don't actually use that, but I think you should read it anyway. Yeah. Um. This, this, they're quite useful, and that underpins all of it. Yeah. Um. So to, again, to try and get them used to getting information from lots of different sources. My big fear used to be um, that some of my students would go and work for people that I knew and be useless. That's now changed to that they'll go and work with my daughters and be useless <laughs> because both of my daughters have at different points worked with people I've taught. Yeah. Um, fortunately, ones who have a decent view of me. Um, <laughs> there, there's a really wide split in views of me. There are some people who love me and some people who absolutely hate me. Um, and that's my big, my big fear. Yes, your education and your degree and that bit is important. But it's a four year. Why is it four years? Because you've got to have space to do yeah. other stuff. And that's one of the reasons why I'm involved in the football club. Um, because that's where you do a lot of your learning. Yeah. The real life learning. And the difficulty that students face now is that because they, the vast majority of students in reality are part time. Yeah, even though they're full time. In what sense? They've got jobs. 
Now, once it, the students have tended to have jobs, but the balance of the need to work to pay rent, particularly in a city like Edinburgh, is now far higher. So it's just a case of how do I pass my assessments? Yeah. And the, the opportunity to spend time hanging around campus and drinking coffee with people like me is reduced right. because they need to get to work. And if work calls them, then they'll go to work rather than come to class. Yeah, yeah. And financially, I completely understand that. I completely get it. And I think that's one of the challenges for education is how do we cope with full-time students in name only? Yeah, yeah. Um, and how do we create those those opportunities for them to learn those those real skills? Well, I mean, it comes back to people skills again. Yeah. For a for a student, and one of the things I want to look at is the the, the differences you've seen from starting as a lecturer with the with the sort of generations of people yeah. to where it is now, and the challenges of communicating that. But from a, for a nineteen or twenty year old. Mm-hmm. How, or even younger, 18, 19, or 20 year old, how challenging is it to actually approach uh, an older person as a lecturer? No offense with the older person, but oh, no. to actually approach that person and say, Can we have a coffee and a chat? and actually be able to sit down and have a conversation and get these really intimate learning moments, yeah. which you might not get when you're sitting in a lecture theater with, or even worse, when you're behind a screen now watching a, a presentation that someone someone's done. That that is the that's a huge challenge. Uh, I mean I use a code for my students. I tell them don't email me mm-hmm. unless it's a problem. We'll use social tools for questions. But there is a code that they can send me which is an email with the subject Stevie I think we need a coffee. Mm-hmm. And that's their way of saying you seem okay. I've got something I need to talk to you about. Right. And part of that means I have to build up a, a rapport with those students in a classroom. And that means that I can't spend all my time behind the desk. It means that I can't spend all my time just reading from the textbook. I have to give them a bit of myself yeah, um, so that they make a connection. Um, and I have used the fact that I'm dad. Yeah. I mean, is that how do you build a rapport with somebody then? As well, not, not even somebody, sorry. I mean, it's easy to, in a one-to-one situation, oh, I say it's easy for some people, a one-to-one situation with rapport building is, is, is quite straightforward. Mm-hmm. But take that and put it into a room full. I mean, how many people will be in a lecture theatre at once for yourself? Anything from 70 to 300. Right, so in a room where you've got maybe 100, 150 people, yeah. how do you make yourself come across as the approachable person where I feel I'm comfortable enough to either ping you an email and say, I'm keen to have a coffee, or even if I bump into you, be able to actually not go, oh my God, there's that lecturer, I hope he doesn't see me, or and actually come forward and say, excuse me, how's things? There's there's two ways to do that. One, the the importance of the tutorial sessions, which are smaller. And those smaller classes is really where you can build a rapport. And some of the time, it's also about being in the room early enough yeah, and being open enough. So one of the things that I do before I start as a, uh, for a lecture, I play music. Right. It changes the dynamic. Okay. There's no silence. And they, they laugh at me because I have a wee sing to myself. <laughs> um, I also, in the big lecture theatres, I make them move forward. Yeah, I don't let them sit at the back. And I say, look, I don't want to talk to blue seats. I want to talk to you. 
I want to have a class of 300 feel like a class of 30. Mm-hmm. And so I'm talking to them. And if they've got questions or if I see confusion, then I'm going to stop and go, are you okay with that? And I'll, I'll laugh at myself. I'll laugh at them. Um, I mean, I start off pretty harsh. And you know, if, if, if you're, if you're late, you're not coming in. Mm-hmm. Simple as. And once I've started, that, that that's not for discussion. Right. So some of them start off quite scared of me. And yet when they've got a question, that's when you've got that chance of saying, right, okay, now let's work this out. Do, do you enjoy the challenge? You've mentioned about, you know, when you have people who you've lectured or taught that go on to work with friends or even your daughters yeah. now. And you, you said, say, some of them are over here and they're yeah. like, I'm all right. Some of them are here and they don't. Do you enjoy the challenge if you see somebody you think, I don't think they like me, but I'm, I'm you know, by, by coming across and helping them, as you mentioned, somebody may be slightly scared of you. Yeah. Petrified, but they ask a question and suddenly, how do you change that perception for them to suddenly go, oh, he's actually really, really nice and now I just want him to, to want to, to please him and want to ask more questions? It, it's, it is difficult. And part of it is I, I genuinely don't care whether people like me or not. Mm. And that's one of the great things that, that goes back to Portobello. Yeah. It's 500 kids in my year, two and a half thousand kids in school. They're not all going to like you. Get over it. Right. Okay. So, and there's no, there's a lot of the time, there's no reason. Um, I mean, one of the girls that I taught years ago, um, I was also going to, I, I did taught in second year and I was going to be her final year dissertation supervisor. So she came up to see me and she walked into my office and went, right, okay, just so we're clear, I hated you and I hated your class. Right. But I'm so glad you're my supervisor because halfway through placement, it all dawned on me one afternoon. And she saw the point of why I made them speak up, why I made them be up on turn up one day. I actually get them business ready by treating them like I would my team. Yeah, yeah. So these are the expectations. So does that that comes from your experience outside of the educational environment to the working environment, what people should be expecting? If you work for me, you're gonna be on time. Yeah. And how hard is that through I mean, what's that, fourteen yeah, fourteen years you've been you know, teaching now, the challenges from communicate. I mean, communication of 14 years has completely turned up on its head. And then not to mention, even in the last two years, yeah. the challenges of COVID-19. So when you are trying to build that rapport, when you're trying to, and even be hard on people, yeah, you could, I mean, is it fair to say you could have been, you were harder maybe on them or got away with being harder on them 14 years ago to being where, what you can now do nowadays with the different societal changes and cultures? Yes. I think there's there has been a massive shift. So from the first sort of bit of time, and I wasn't full time teaching. Mm-hmm. I was doing commercial stuff as well, so sure. it was it was different. When I first started teaching full term in 2011, 2012, um, I had a massive, massive class, and that's when we started using social media a lot. Right, and it was the students who said. Can you record your classes? It was students who said you should get a Facebook page. Nah, and was that was that fairly new at that time? Were you, was there other lecturers doing no, something? It was similar? unheard of. Right. Okay. Completely unheard of. Um and I'm like, right, okay, yeah, we can give that a go and work things out. And because I listen I think part of the thing is because I listen to them when they've got suggestions, 
that are valid or I say, well, actually, I do it this way because, mm. and I explain why I want you to sit in the front. There's a really good reason for it. Why I want you here on time. There's a really good reason for it. Um, and actually, as much of it is about them as it is about me. Yeah. Um, but about, I think, 2016, 2017, was probably the last really good class that I had. Mm. And after that, it got really difficult. Why? Couldn't work it out. Until a couple of years after that, I was at a conference. And one of the keynote speakers said, yeah, but Gen Z don't expect much from university. And I had I had my penny drop moment kindly. That's it. They're Gen Z students now. Their expectation is different. Right. So where before... I could get them doing Mexican waves. I could get them, I've had classes singing and dancing and doing all sorts of things. Once you get into Gen Z, they're much more cautious and much more focused on, but how do I pass? Right. So they've gone very much to the, I want good grades. Okay. Whereas the other guys would go like, this is a lot of fun. I don't know what we're learning, but this is a lot of fun. So a lot of the process is lost and it's more direct. Route yeah. one, yeah. get there, get yeah. what I need to do. Is Mexican wave going to be an exam? No. So why am I doing it? Okay. Because actually it helps you understand communication. Right. There you go. It's a physical way of breaking up a class, getting them to do something different, getting them to do something physical, use the body instead of just the brain and try and get them to do things in a different way. But that, so that was going on for a couple of years before lockdown. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was getting harder in classes. Attendance wasn't as good as I say, you know, the requirement to work, etc. Then you go online mm-hmm. and no one wants to turn the camera on. No one wants to turn yeah. the microphone on. And you are literally talking to yourself. I mean, at least when we're doing this, it's a proper yeah. conversation. Yeah. It's not a case of I am talking to a collection of plastic and metal in front of me <laughs> which the last two years of my life has kind of felt an awful lot like did you change much did you adapt your style of teaching one of the things we've noticed a lot with that kind of format mm. was instead of that that horrible feeling of just talking to yourself and i've done it myself through what i do is spend more time actually setting tasks for groups mm. because if you can encourage them to communicate with themselves yeah. It's easier than trying to communicate with them. One of the things that I did was was I took a, a two-hour class and turned it into a one-hour video. Right. Although somebody said you've stripped all the personality out of it. So a lot of the stories and a lot of the spaces where those those tasks in the classroom where I'm asking an open question yeah. or somebody's got something that they're not sure about and you've got that space to explore. Um, one of the things I was conscious of was that the the videos that I wanted to create, they all have a wee talking head in the corner. Because mm. um, something that I'd read had said, it's really good if you can get that, or at worst, put a picture in of yourself so the students have got a chance to. So I've been trying to connect with the person watching it. Yeah. Even though there's a delay of at times years between me recording it and them watching it. <laughs> but to try, you know, Remember, there's some kid stuck in a student flat 
they're living and studying in a very small space. They're probably watching this in their bed. How can you get this away from just another dull lecture? Mm. Um, so that, yeah, that changed, you know, from somebody who loves the theatre yeah. of a big lecture theatre, who that feedback that you get from people in the room, you know, this as well as I do. Yeah. When people are getting it, it feels great. When people are not getting it, you know that you've got to do something different. Yeah. But that's really hard to anticipate when you're talking to yourself. No, I mean, would you say, to a certain extent, be honest as well, if you if I'm on the wrong track here, but would you, would you sometimes see your lectures as a performance? You talk about the sort of preparation and then the moment you're in there to yeah. try and, and, and it engages. So to put on some of these performances in a circumstance where you're doing it in front of a computer screen to blank, blanks. And it, how, how challenging is that for you personally and mentally? Very, very difficult. And I was going through a lot of personal stuff at the same time. Right. Um, so whilst I was trying to do this, my, my, my dad was ill and then he passed away. There was stuff going on at work. There was stuff going on at home. To a certain extent, the the distraction, the technical distraction of creating a video, getting it to work, getting it to sync up, understanding, you know, um, the picture qualities and, and resolutions and how you get it to, to all sync up so that it's good. That kind of helped me a little bit. Mm. Um, so that, that bit was quite good. The technical challenge of it was actually quite good fun. Yeah. And I got to the point where I looked at stuff and I thought, actually, that's okay. I look back at it now and I think I need to re-record some of this stuff yeah. because of what I've learned since. Mm. Um, but yeah, it really was, it took me three weeks solid to record an hour that I thought was worth using. Do you think there was other people in the universities, not just your own and you don't have to mention individuals, but do you think there were other people in education that just didn't have that buzz for like you know buzz of people lecturers going i'm not going to spend three weeks no. to do a one-hour video i i think probably most of my colleagues i i have a study of mm. my own which i've had for 20 odd years i had a powerful desktop with three 23 inch monitors hanging off it i had the software i had the confidence i knew what my voice sounds like yeah so i wasn't going through that I've been recording video in classes for years, so I was okay with that. I knew how to do it one way. I didn't know how to do it, how to perform it that way. But the technical side of it was very different. Mm. Now, if you take that to somebody who is less technically experienced than me, at my age or older, they're not going. To, they're not going to do that, and I don't blame them. If you're working off a laptop and you're working off the kitchen table and you're trying to homeschool your kids at the same time and all the rest of it. I was in an environment where when I wanted to record, I told the rest of them, I'm recording this morning, don't put the washing machine on. Yeah, yeah. And I closed the door and I can get in my wee world and do it. And there was a wee bit of sanctuary for that. So I know how fortunate I was. And there's a little bit of me that went, I need better webcams, right, I'll just buy them. Mm. I need better microphones, I'll just buy them. And I basically built a broadcast studio wow. in my house. So do you think then, you know, if you're lucky enough to be a student that has a lecturer and a teacher that has that much passion 
and drive to try and enhance what they're doing versus somebody who maybe gets stuck with a lecturer or a teacher in another university or in another class who doesn't have that. How, how do you how do you bridge that gap in education right now? Because now that the box has been opened, do you, I mean, you mentioned already the fact that new generation of learners through the cost of living and through university, it's, it's becoming almost too difficult to even turn up to the university now, particularly yeah. now that the box, as I say, the box has been opened where we can just sit in our bedrooms or sit in our hut flats and watch lectures at our leisure. Yeah. I mean, is this, is this a transition period in education, do you think? I think that there's two bits that I kind of come to when I'm thinking about that. Part of it is there's some things that are just not new. Yeah. There were some folk who were really good in the classroom before mm-hmm. and others less so. Now I'm fortunate. I'm 6'4". I've got a fairly big personality. And you're right. I do like the performance element of it. I know a lot of my, my colleagues don't. Mm-hmm. Now, you said earlier on about people who've kind of gone through working at school, working at university, and they're actually researchers who are forced to teach. Yeah. I feel quite sorry for them. Yeah. Whereas I'm a teacher who some of the time is forced to do research. I actually just want to be in a classroom. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I feel comfortable there. And that bit I really enjoy. Have I enjoyed the last couple of years of creating it? Some elements of it. But I... I mean, one of the bits of research that I have done was on um, lecture capture. So what happens when you record your your lectures? What happens to attendance? Do students use them? When do they use Mm -hmm. them? What do you think? Um, One of the things that we, we, the second piece we we did um, was about lecture consumption for the Netflix generation. They binge watched. Yeah, yeah. So here's my exam. I'm going to watch the bits I need to watch. I don't. I'm not really bothered about the rest of it, mm. even though the rest of it, in ten years' time, might be useful. And how much again does that come back to like we talked about is learning to pass a, a yeah. test versus actually getting the life experience and some of the the more intimate learning moments that you can get from from face to face conversations and and smaller intimate group group chat. League tables for schools and universities have made educational establishments in my view quite strategic mm-hmm. um, which in turn has made our students quite strategic so if the school gets credit for the number of kids that they've got who get hires at a particular pass rate then do you know what we're going to make sure that those kids get hires at a particular pass rate yeah, yeah. Um, what you measure tends to be the outcome that you get wow. whereas the space for teachers who allow you to, to experiment with stuff, there's less and less of that. How, how important, going back, you mentioned storytelling. I love this. Yeah. Storytelling is a big thing for me. I love telling stories. I'm sure anyone who's listening to, to me has probably suffered a few stories <laughs> that I've had to tell and regale. But again, it, it kind of, as we talked about this performance side of it, how valuable do you see storytelling to get a point across and to build a sort of lesson from that? We remember stories. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's funny. The things that the students remember from my class tend to be the stories rather than the theoretical concept. Now, one of the fun things about teaching um, older students, whether it's you know, commercial work, where you teach post-experience students 
and adding theory into that, mm. they're making sense of it going, oh, I know that. Yeah, yeah it worked for them. <laughs> yeah, I've seen that happen. Whereas if you've got younger people who don't have that work experience, you're having to teach them theoretical concepts and explain what that means where they've got a blank canvas. They've got no experience to hang it off. Yeah. yeah. So for somebody like me who has done a, a bunch of weird jobs, been some really interesting places, met some interesting people, I tend to tell stories. Yeah. It's the oldest way of teaching, if you think about yeah. it. If you go back, you know, the hieroglyphics on a wall yeah. is effectively someone explaining a story. And, yeah. you know, that that's how people understood that what wild animals were dangerous because someone came back and said he didn't make it because and told a story about how someone was eaten by a tiger. And, yeah. and yeah. basically that's a, a lesson learned. And I think, I think we maybe lose sight of that sometimes when we're teaching to the test or... You know, students get really nervous in the first class because I'm not talking about what's in the exam. Mm. Or he doesn't, he doesn't tell us what's in the exam. I will, but I'm going to tell you in week 12, not week one. Yeah, yeah. Because we've got a whole lot of stuff to do in between. You mentioned about your, you don't mind having a laugh at yourself. Yeah. And things like that. Do you add humour a lot into into some of the stuff you do to, to help ease people in? Yeah. I mean, in the workplace, I remember one of my bosses um, called me and we probably quite early on with an actual team of four and this guy you know, Fred pulled me into his office and he said oh, I've had a complaint I said, oh, what have I done? Mm. and he said your team are very noisy I went what he said I've had complaints from other people your team are very noisy and I just stood up and on the way out the door I said that's the sound of people communicating Yeah. and I loved the fact that the, these these four folk that, that worked together um they didn't have to break the silence to ask a dumb question. Yeah. If you made a mistake, you were going to get tortured for it. But that's fine, because you'll only get tortured until somebody else does something dumb, yeah. and then it's their turn. And I find that people, when they're having a laugh and a joke, actually work harder. Mm. It's not that they're not working. It's that you create that environment where work is fun, and I think we've lost that. Yeah. You know, when I talk to my my daughters and my friends about you know the workplace and how things are and I think about my own experience I think this used to be a lot more fun mm. um, whereas we seem to have become very serious now mm. Mm. and I, I don't like it it's a, yeah I mean creating the environment is the buzzword at the moment cultures and environment are the two sort of areas that people look at and, and I think it's because we've got such a quick a generation that moves so quickly with cult culturally, but what that does is that changes the environment that you're in, and that means maybe environments can change a lot faster than they used to. Yeah, but I don't know if it's necessarily better. No, but I mean, I mean, one morning I walked into a classroom, and it was it was a ten o'clock class. It was probably November, and there was no light coming through the glass in the mm -hmm. door. How come I'm first here? Oh, there's 10 people sat in the room in the dark, all on their phone. No one has switched the light on. And I'm like, going. Guys, what are you doing? Oh, hang on a minute. Are you texting each other to find out who knows where the light switch is? <laughs> at which point they laughed at each other yeah. and they realised how ridiculous it was. But no one had had the common sense. To, mm. Where's the switch? The switch is beside the door. Yeah. It doesn't require the responsible adult in the room to mm. turn the light on.
first man in the door, turn the light on. And how do you how do you communicate communicate that over to a generation where it doesn't want to sound like the old dad is lecturing the kids? I remember giving a a, a team a hard time at halftime once. And I'm like, guys, you're making me sound like somebody's dad. At which point somebody piped up, hey, Stevie, you are somebody's dad. <laughs> um, and I sometimes do joke at myself, so, you know, at the risk of sounding like your dad, right. we need to do this. So how do you keep yourself young so that you keep engaged with that, that, that generation and that audience so that you don't become disconnected? I'm really fortunate. I have a 22-year-old daughter. Um, and we spent a lot of time together in lockdown. Yeah. Um, she played basketball for a long time. She she's a dance teacher, an exceptional dancer. So she was out most of the time. So she and I didn't spend a lot of time simply because she wasn't around. Yeah. Um, I spent more time with her sister growing up because she played football. Um, and then lockdown came, kind of came along, and George and I have spent an awful lot of time watching football yeah and now she is like if i'm going to a game the chances are she'll come with me if we've got a spare ticket yeah um and i'll ask her questions so you keep yourself uh curious yeah because obviously the danger i see a lot of is people at a certain generation at a certain age will go I'm older and therefore wiser, so ergo I know better. And by losing that curious and curiosity to understand people, yeah, because they feel like I know people because I've been around longer. I, I, I'm inside. I'm four. <laughs> there is a, just a, you know, a, a giant, crumbling fifty-five-year-old body, um, but, but knees are probably a good bit older than that. But inside. Yeah. I'm still that four-year-old kid who just wants to know why. Yeah. Um, why are we doing it that way? Why are we not doing it that way? But what if we do this? Can we try that? Can we, what's that for? And I'm very hard to work with and I'm very hard to live with because I'm genuinely never satisfied yeah. with what we've done. And I want to understand if there's a better way to do it. But just because you want to do it this way doesn't necessarily mean it's a better way of doing things. Yeah. Okay. Um, so there is trying to hit that balance and okay, we can try it, but if you've got a class of 320, there's only one person who gets to make the rules. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And we can we can change that over time. Yeah. But at the end up, guys, it is coming down to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you, you mentioned about football a couple of times. Yeah. That sort of moves us on. Football is a big part of your life. Yeah. But also now, as part of your career and part of your job, you did a, a you did some studies in Scottish football, yeah. which led to you creating a, a football management qualification as such. Yeah. Um, when I started teaching, they then gave me the opportunity to do my doctorate. Mm-hmm. And they gave me a complete free hand on what I did. <laughs> dumb thing to do and most of the people that I work with who were doing were doing education type things but I had an interest in in football um, a couple of friends have been professional footballers and I'd started coaching probably about 2003 2004 
because my eldest daughter was playing. Right. And she wanted me to get involved and I didn't really want to get involved. I never saw myself as a coach. And then I got involved and I quite enjoyed it. And as one of my friends was kind of coming out of football and he was trying to figure out what's next was the point. So there was this sort of transfer of information yeah. going on and a lot of questions. And I, when I went back to the, when I went to uni in 2006, I got involved in coaching then. Um, and I've been there ever since. But So I was curious. Um, we, we, we've we talked kind of off of this about the number of clubs that there are in Scotland. Yeah. And there is that question, why are there so many clubs in Scotland? Mm-hmm. Um, and why is it so hard? So I wanted to understand how people saw things. And it's all very well to kind of look at things from the outside and go, oh, this is how it should be. But I was conscious that there was very little research in Scottish football. Mm. Um, so I used my network. I used people phoned me up and said, you know, I know so-and-so, can, can you do this? You know, do you want to talk to them? So I spent a couple of years gathering data on player development, number of appearances, manager win rates, income, all sorts of things. Wow. Um, over a, as long a period as I could get. And at the same time, I was talking to people, chief execs, um, uh, chairman, um, marketing people, managers, what actually happens. And basically trying to clear my head out. Mm. Because what you know as a fan <laughs> counts for nothing. Yeah, yeah. I'm learning a lot of stuff. Oh, relearning. Yeah. I mean, I knew that I had to unlearn. Um, and what I really wanted to try and do was to create some kind of framework, some way of understanding it. So once I started that, um, I was conscious that there was a course in, in England run originally out of Warwick, now out of Liverpool. Um, and the PFA funded that for, yeah. for, for players and managers. So I got in touch with PFA Scotland to here's an idea, what do you think about it? Seems like a good idea. And we tried it and we just couldn't get it to work. Right. And we had to make a really difficult decision to, to, to just let it die. How tough was that? Hardest decision I've ever made. So, I mean, how much time effort have you put oh, into it? I want to think about it. Really? It wasn't just the time and effort. I mean, um, the guys that I'd worked with on it, we'd put heart and soul into it. So I mean, what I mean, you're effectively at this point mixing two passions together because you're you're now this is the lecturer who is loving the the challenge of teaching people. Yeah. And then what you're able to do is you're able to combine that with your other passion, which is football. And I mean, for myself, even that sounds like a, a dream job to to teach people football so, uh, in in a, in a term of not not as a as a as a coach as such, but that that element. Um, yeah, it's kind of weird. Um, so we, we, we'd left it for eight or nine years. Really? So as long as um, And I finished my doctorate and, and that was all done. And you know by that stage, I'd done a lot more um, coaching and managing myself. And 
completely out of the blue, got a phone call from one of the guys that I'd worked with before and said, Do you, are you still interested in doing this? Because somebody else has joined PFA Scotland now. Um, their job is to do education for time. They think we can get funding for it. Do you want to have conversations? So a couple of conversations took place. Um, I spoke to, to the dean at the time. She said, yep, go ahead with this. Um, sounds like a really good idea. Um, and I mean, the first the first six months were traumatic, <laughs> to say the very least. Yeah. Um, how do you put this politely? There was a wee clash between what we were trying to do and the way that the, the universities want to work. Okay. My attitude was. People are going to give us money to do this. Yeah. Um, and there was an element of some people that I think didn't really think I could do it. Right. Um, I knew I could. Mm. <laughs> what was the challenge then? What I mean, I'm going to use a phrase here, and I, it, you know, there is a, a trope that footballers are are not intelligent. No. And there's a phrase, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of perception around footballers and education. Was that was that possibly no. part of it? No. 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 Um, it was quite funny because we did a, a kind of an open day mm-hmm. and so there was, there was sort of 14, 15 guys who were interested in doing the course and I have never been so intimidated by walking in a room in my life. Really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So we're, we're talking footballers, ex-footballers, managers, chief executives. I, I, I don't mind, you know, Dave Gray, Darren McGregor, Stephen Wecker, Christoph Berra, James McPake. Damn no day. Wow. Um, so in Scottish football terms, you know, guys that have played at a very decent, very high level. In fact, you know, you're talking Scottish international level as well. I'd, I'd been hand and seen these guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I'd been to that cup final as well. Um, <laughs> and so there's a little bit of you thinking, hang on a minute here. And yet I found it later on that they were feeling exactly the same as I was because they're thinking, can I do this? Because... Some of the guys have done, you know, open university stuff, um, but some of them left school 16, 17 and hadn't picked up books since then. So they're slightly concerned with, can I do this? Now, my job is to get them through that process. Mm. My job is to is to teach people. Yeah. My, my job is not to teach people. The way that I explain it is that my job is to help you learn something useful. Okay. So that's, for me, the responsibility is on you to learn. Um, and the responsibility is on me to create an environment where that's possible. Mm. Do you think it helped that you had been in that situation back in 2006 where you were leaving an environment with no previous experience really in education definitely and going in and they were now yeah. being in that exact same vulnerability uh, you know, that that sort of situation that they found themselves in you know you're talking about the kind of preconceptions that we have of footballers they had preconceptions of what university was like yeah i wasn't what they expected right they weren't what i expect i mean when somebody says to me you're not what i expected that's the nicest thing that yeah. anybody can say uh, to me. yeah um and to kind of create that environment. And I knew in about three days, because the first time we did it, it was a, a solid week. I nearly broke them in that week. Yeah. 
And about on the third day, one of the guys said, it actually feels like a dressing room in here. Yeah, creating that environment again. And that's the point I thought, this will work. Yeah. Because they felt comfortable with me. And now I was I was fortunate. I'd built up a, a long-term relationship um, with Stuart Lovell, who'd been at PFA Scotland for a long time. Michael Hart came in. I built up a good relationship with those two. They got me into that room, and yeah. they got the others into that room. So I was going in on their say-so. Yeah. But I knew I had an hour yeah. to convince them that they wanted to work with me. How do you prepare for something like that? Because what we're looking at in, in my mind here is, you know, you've got the vulnerability of being somebody outside mm-hmm. of their environment. Yeah. And then they've got the vulnerability of being outside their environment and, and being in yours. So when you talk about build, we've, we've mentioned building rapport, we've yeah. talked about storytelling, we've talked about people skills. Did you have to give them full everything that you possibly had, and how how did you how did you manage to do that to create the environment where not only do they think this is okay, I'll give this a go, but actually a week later or down a week into the course, actually give you that compliment to say that you've managed to create these people feeling so comfortable in an environment that they know so well. I mean the. The conversations that they started to have, you know, were brilliant. I got home at the end of the first day, my wife said, what can you tell me? No, how did today go? And I went, fine. Mm. She says, is that all you're saying? And I'm like, yes. Mm. Um, part of it is, is about trying to get people to feel comfortable. One of the things that I, I really enjoy when I'm teaching, and particularly in smaller rooms, is if there's whiteboards on the wall, mm. I'm going to bring coloured pens with me. Mm. I'm going to want to draw on the walls. Right. Um, so one of the first things I did was I got the guys to say, right, okay, so what I want you to do is on your own, think about the best managers you work with and the worst managers you work with. Now, I don't want names, but think about what made them good and yeah. what made them less so. And then we're going to get to talk to each other. And what I did was I had a, a, a certain number of cards and I dealt with cards out and basically, you know, rather than trying to say, you know, you guys work together, you, I wanted to mix them up randomly. Put the Hibs and Hearts players working together. It ended up <laughs> where I did have Dave and Christoph working together. Um, and funnily enough, uh, Christoph and Joe Cardell, who played each other the night before, and Christoph had a big black eye, and I'm like, I hope that wasn't him, because <laughs> this could get interesting. Um, and I got them to write up their ideas on the board. Yeah. So then they had they had to be ready to kind of be vulnerable. Yeah. And one of them joked the fact that the last time he did this when he was at school, he got into trouble for writing on the wall. So I'm like, no, no, this is what I want you to do. But part of my thing there is there's no right and wrong answers. Mm. So it's trying to bring out what they know. So then I'm trying to make them feel a bit more comfortable with saying, yeah, okay, that that's good. Yeah, give me more. What do you mean by that? Yeah, yeah. And not making people feel inadequate, making people feel stupid, because in education, too often you make people feel like that. To try and create that environment where they actually then went, nah, this guy seems all right, and actually the rest of them seem all right. Yeah. And we want to be able to do this, and we want to be able to spend time with each other. Um, 
and ask them interesting questions, but also be prepared to say, well, here's what I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I got a bit of credit, probably more credit than I expected to, because I'd managed the university team for quite a long time. Right. The, some of them were like, yeah, but you've done this. Yeah, but not at the No, but you've... Because I've been on the touchline, I've made those decisions. That, yeah. that got me a bit of credit. So what, what we, what's in the course? For people listening who, I mean... What are you teaching these people? Are you teaching them the benefits of four four two versus three at the back, or what? What kind of what do these players learn from this course that you're put, you're putting them through? What I'm trying to get them to do is actually to turn around. Right. It's the best way for me to describe it is if you're facing the pitch, I'm going to turn you around and look away from the pitch. I'm I'm not qualified to extol the virtues of one system over another. There's people at the SFA far more qualified than me do a fantastic job of that already. What I'm trying to get guys to do is to be prepared for whatever is next. Now, you don't know what next is. It may be in football, it may be out football. Management, coaching, director of football. Um, So the first bit I'm trying to get them to do is to think about that transition. So we, we look at things like critical thinking. We look at things like framing and reframing. Mm. We look at, you know, hard things like identity theory. Right. Because they're going away from one identity of very, very strong, I am a footballer. Yeah. That is who they are. To, I don't know what this next identity looks like. And that transition is going to be hard. Um, We look at, Understanding an organisation, mm-hmm. so culture, strategy. We also do some specific football stuff using the the material that I developed, and we've developed it since. So it started off with about five things on it, and it's now got about 27 wow. things on it. Um, I've got a big coloured version of it, which a lot of them are signed for me, which is brilliant to go on my wallet in the office. Um, but also to look outside the club, so that you you don't just look at the club, but you look at the the immediate environment. Yeah. So who your competitors are, what the other substitute products are. So people don't go to football. Where are they going? Yeah. Um, how likely is it that they will get on a train and go to Tynecastle East Road in Edinburgh instead of staying in Kirkcaldy to watch a game of football? Yeah. How likely are they to do the opposite? Right. Um, who your customers are and it's not just about your fans because there are so many other products that football clubs sell now yeah, yeah. Um, you know using their confidence space um, sometimes a car parking space things like that but also to look out wider so that lots of the things that are going on at the moment you know cost of living increase environmentalism these kind of questions so one of the main pieces of coursework they have to do is they get a club right. and they have to look at the club, the, the industry the in which they operate and the environment in yeah. which they operate so that they've got a much better idea. So that if you go into a club, wherever that club is, you're now aware that you've got to look round about and, you know, Forfar and Wraith Rovers are not the same. They are football clubs, yeah, but they're not the same and they're not the same area and they've got different challenges and different problems. Wow. Um, and then the last thing is kind of working in teams. Mm-hmm. 
uh, looking at projects, looking at changes, why do people not like to make changes, um, how to use different sources of power, how to get the best out of people, the influencing skills. Um, we've also been really fortunate. Um, Luke Shanley from Sky Sports comes in and does a media session. Oh, brilliant. Uh, I mean, it's far and away the best. Um, and we basically go through videos, interview videos, and good and bad. Yeah, yeah. And he talks about it from his perspective. Uh, and we kind of talk about, well, when you're talking to the, the media after the game, who are you talking to? You're talking to your players, you're talking to the fans, you're talking to the board, you're talking to your next employer. Um, and we look at finance. I've got one of my legal friends comes in and does a law session, yeah. things like that. So it's, as I say, it's it's 180 degrees away from the pitch. Massive, massive amount. But it's now all of the things that you're not responsible for, but you will be influenced by. Yeah. Um, and that's me taking my kind of manager hat, the research hat, and lots of the other kind of tools and stuff that I use or things that I think are would be useful. What are the uh, challenges? And do you see similar challenges with every group? Do you see uh do you see when 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 you get groups of footballers coming in, what are the what are the usual challenges that you expect to face from these guys? Is it communication with people or is it what what what, what is it that you find they they find so challenging taking a step out of the environment they've known for so many years and coming into a completely different one. Uh, some of the times you say, guys, you know, some of the topics, you kind of get them to sharp. Right. The discussion's brilliant. And the issues of cameras being off is not an issue with these guys because very, very quickly we moved it to virtual and we've kept it virtual yeah. because it allows us to, to cover a yeah. much bigger geographical area. Um. But it's when you're you're giving them things that's completely new. Yeah. They're really having to try and get their heads around it. Um I remember one of the guys when I gave them this big diagram and he said, Do we have to know all of this? I'm like, Yeah. <laughs> you know, you're not responsible for all of it, but it's gonna have an impact on you. Yeah. So you can't just ignore it. Mm. Um so some of it they really enjoy and then getting them to do reflective stuff at the end it's interesting looking at what sessions they found individually most beneficial is there any that stick out usually that you wouldn't expect um quite a few of them really enjoy the identity theory so we'll talk a little bit about that then what 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 goes through a pro like what's the identity theory that you go through how we see ourselves mm -hmm. so how do i see myself as you know, I mean, I struggle with defining myself. Um, am I an academic? Not really. Mm. I have the title, I have all the qualifications, but I'm not what you expect. But that's what I do for a living. I'm a coach, I'm a dad, I'm a brother, I'm a son, I'm a husband, I'm a friend, I'm a mentor. You've got all these other, all these other relationships. When you're a player, that's it. Yeah, and that, quite a lot of the time, it's quite interesting, them kind of looking at it going, I've not really spent enough time on the relationships part. Mm. You know, I haven't spent enough time with my kids. Um, a lot of them are very strong on that. 
I have to say that's that's an interesting fuse when you've got a perception of a player and you see that perception of a player as dad. Yeah, that's an interesting. Is it, I mean a lot of you hear a lot of professional sportsmen and women they talk about how selfish they've had to be yeah. and basically family and kids have to play second fiddle to the career that they're on because of the the intensity that is. So for a player to spend all that, I mean, you might, you're, the ages of players that you're dealing with now, when they're coming through what we're talking, late, mid to late 30s. Well, I mean, this year, it's just passed. There were a few younger ones right. who are starting to look ahead long term, which was, was a challenge. We also had Joel Murray from Hibs Swimming, which gave us another interesting perspective. Mm. Um, and people doing different jobs. Yeah. Um, so some of them who are already kind of player and doing other things, maybe coaching or um, got responsibility for um, sort of direct to the football type roles in, in some of the other clubs, they're now starting to get those different identities. Yeah, but you have to. If you want to get to that top level, your your job is going to decide where you live. Yeah, how many players are going to have to change where they live in the next month? Yeah, yeah. And it's not a discussion. It's not really a what do we think about this. It's okay. I'm going to go. Are you all coming with me or not? Mm. Um, and and those kind of challenges that that, that come with it. Um, so that I wasn't really expecting them to get into that quite so much for me what's great is that they really enjoy the sessions that you master right and as a researcher to get to use your stuff in teaching is yeah. just brilliant yeah and I also have people help you pick it apart yeah okay and point out the bits that you missed right or point out the bits that you maybe not quite understood so you're getting a full insight, even a deeper insight into your own research because it's coming from the horse's mouth effectively yeah. at some oh, point. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. But at the same time, they're looking at it going, oh, I've never really seen you know, the importance of marketing people Yeah. or the difficulty that the, the or the impact that people selling you know, pies and whatever, that that has on the playing squad, particularly at a smaller level. How big is perception then? You know, if you if you're a footballer and you spend half your life, or maybe even longer than half your life, playing football at that level, yeah, and then the perception completely. I mean, we've seen it before: a player coming out of the 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 dressing room as a player and taking the step up to manager, and then sometimes it doesn't work out, and yeah. you hear stories about them, what why it failed and stuff like that. So, changing and challenging their perceptions, and then as you've just mentioned. They're challenging their perceptions on the value of supporters and fans, the value of people in the club, like the marketing department, yeah. or the value, you know, and, and things like that. How do you how do you get that into them to start with? How do you get them thinking along those lines? You just introduce the concept. You know, you start you start to because anything I do has got blobs and, and arrows, mm-hmm. and you've got the arrow from. Fans and the you know understanding that there are different kinds of fans. There are season ticket holders. There are yeah. people who come regularly. There are people who go to cup finals. And actually, the importance of away supporters. Yeah, they can be a lot of revenue if you become one of those places that people want to go to. Mm. Um, that feeds directly into the finance bit, which feeds directly into the playing squad bit. Mm. Um, so as soon as they start to see those concepts, they're like, "All oh, right, okay, hi." Right, I see that. 
Um, and it, it, I mean, quite a lot of players don't go to games. No. No, you, you they've probably never been to a game. Not as supporters. As a supporter. Yeah, yeah. So they don't actually have that. I always find that as a football fanatic and geek, and when you explain, when you get the opportunity, and I'm lucky enough to sometimes get the opportunity to speak to players, yeah. and you try and explain to them, and you wonder, like, they must think I'm on a different planet sometimes because the way that a grown man will behave yeah. at what their actions on the park will do, yeah. but they've never experienced that themselves because... They've never been on the other side of that that barrier between, and, and it, I mean that I find that fascinating for the, the how you can change that concept and mindset for them to actually realise that. But what are the what are the challenges you've mentioned about? You know, you you the next generation of um, of learners that you're having to teach. Yeah. How do you prepare a potential football manager for the same problem now? I, in my courses, I use football and sport as a big example of how quickly generations can change. Mm-hmm. Because in a football dressing room, you know, you're going to have a six, potentially 16-year-old in one end, yeah. but you're only going to have about a 35-year-old, maybe 37, 38. Mm-hmm. And that will change within a year yeah. because the players will, there will be players leaving, younger players coming in. So for a football, I mean, even now as we're speaking at this, the football season is about to start. When you see a manager's job that's up for grabs, what gets me is that the the managers are now, less of them are the traditional 55, 60 year old that's been around the block. More of them now are the 40 to 45. In fact, if you're a 50 year old manager now, you're you're seen as an old manager. Whereas now you've got managers like, you know, Ian Murray at Race Rovers or other young managers coming through even you mentioned James McPake yeah, 37. 37 years old and, and, no, basically James McPake is the same age as Dan McGregor yeah so there you go you and, 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 and when you look at it I think uh, David Moyes was 44 when he took on Everton and he was seen as a young manager yeah. in the English Premier League so how do you prepare these guys for because they've, they've grown up learning a way of being managed mm-hmm. and now they are having to manage a generation, or maybe even two generations below them. I, part of what I'm, I'm not telling people how to do things. Yeah, and that's never been my style. Um, it's about awareness of the kind of issues that you're likely to face, so that you've got an opportunity to think ahead. Mm-hmm. Um, because it doesn't matter what industry you're in, you're not ready for that first job in management. Mm. That first job in management is horrendous. And you, it's, it's so lonely. Mm. And there's that bit where something goes wrong and everybody kind of turns and looks at you and you sort of think, what's behind me? And you realise that you're it. Yeah. They're looking for answers. Now, that doesn't matter whether you're a 20-something in an IT department or whether you're a 30-something or a 40-something in a football dressing room. Mm. Now, the fortunate thing for me in my situation was nobody published my results. Nobody shouted at us yeah. in the street because we got it wrong. Um, so you're trying to make people aware of all of the levels of complexity so that you don't just go in and think, well, all I've got to do is to be able to put a session on and pick a team. Yeah. Yeah, but now you're responsible not just for yourself, but for everybody else. Yeah. 
and everybody wants five minutes, even though five minutes doesn't exist. Mm. And you know, this guy's partner's just had a baby, so he's not getting a decent sleep. Um, he's gone through a messy divorce. He just picked up what too many points in his license. There's all of these things going on that you're not responsible for any of them. Mm-hmm. But actually, he's not sleeping properly. Do I really want to put him in to the team? Is it going to have an impact on there? Yeah, I mean, to have something like that that could have, it's not your problem as such, yeah. but at the same time, it can, can can have an impact on the end result, which then is your problem. Well, absolutely. And I think as fans, we tend to forget that, yeah. that the complexities that we face at work with the other people that we work with are there in the dressing room. Yeah. And the complexities that the manager has and his coaching staff and the fact that you're responsible for yourself, you're responsible for your coaching team, you're responsible for the squad, you've got players who are not playing, who hate you, you've got players who are playing, who think you're great. You're, you're also now realising that you're having to manage up. Yeah. You've actually not got that much power that you thought you had. Mm. Um. And I think it's even those little things where suddenly you realise that you're you're not at the top of the club. You're actually in the middle. Yeah. You're you're the highest profile person there, but you're actually the manager of a particular division or department in this very complex organization. Yeah. And I think if you if you know that, yeah then you're a little bit better prepared from thinking, oh, I've got my I've got my coaching drama and I know how to do this. Um and it's I mean it's really interesting. I mean I'm still in touch with pretty much everybody um that I've that I've worked with over the last three years. And talking to them as they're going into different roles and finding out what's happening and the challenges that they face. And it, that then helps me and I Build that in later on, but it's 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 incredibly difficult. Yeah, I mean, how, how on this subject then? on the communication side of it, I mean, what what kind of communication do these get? Because you're mentioning now, a manager is now having to for the first time, potentially as a player becoming a manager, has to not just communicate with his teammates mm-hmm. and occasionally the manager, assistant manager, what have you, coaching staff. Now a manager has to speak to directors and chairman yeah uh, where there is his boss yeah her boss but then at the same time then having to communicate with the players in the dressing room but on a different level yeah where it's like there's no longer i'm not your, i'm not a teammate anymore i'm now a, i'm now a manager and then of course as you know do you take points from your uh business courses mm-hmm. that you can put in there and then or and do you take points from your football course that can feed into your to your business course? Um, I tend not to take stuff from football into business because that gets me into trouble. <laughs> um, I do use a lot of the stuff that I've taught in different classes and moved it because I've taught, you know, kind of management things I wish I'd known when I was 25 when I yeah. had my first team. Those things, doesn't matter what the environment is, that I'm going to bring into it. Um, part of it is that I'm very careful not to say things, not to, to share things that I know about, you know, 
one of my daughters now, she doesn't ask me, did you know that? Mm. She'll ask me, when did you know that? Yeah, so something's happened in the, you've heard of it. You know, or, or you, know, you know, somebody's gone, uh, you know, like when Jack Ross left at Hibs, my wife said to me, did you know this was happening? And mm-hmm. I'm like, no. Nobody knew this was happening. Yeah. Um, so I'm very, very careful because if I break that trust yeah. at all, I'm done. But definitely not so much taking like anecdotally, yeah. but even the fact that, I mean, I always personally believe that there's so many lessons from sport that can help people within their business environments because, I mean, for example, right, I look at a manager and I think any manager that goes into a, a football club after the previous manager's just been sacked, mm-hmm. that guy has to be a change manager. Yep. Because, and, and that would be the same as uh, a chief executive coming into another business mm-hmm. or somebody coming in for a recovery of yep. something happening in that business. Because what he's very quickly, or she's very quickly got to do is a complete turnaround of the culture and mindset mm-hmm. and communicate as best as possible to people. And sometimes you see the new manager bounce and sometimes you don't. And then you hear why it never happened and stuff like that. So whether that's a dressing room environment with 22 or 25 mm-hmm. blokes or girls, 16 to 37, or whether that's a team of web developers. I think it's like, for me, it's always a case of understanding who's in the room. Mm. Um, and I, I mean, I do use, I, I do talk about football. Although I, I've always said to my students, do not use football no. as an example in an exam, because you have to accept you might not like it, but the guy reading it knows more than you do. Yeah. And I, one of the guys ignored it, and he, he wrote this big whole thing about um, Leipzig and who did what in the club. And I'm reading it, going, no, that's not true, and that's not true, and no, that's not true, because I know all these people. Yeah. Um, he got unlucky. He didn't know that I'd spent time at the club over there because, yeah. again, an ex-student is, is now works over there. Um, so I might use football in there, but I'm also very careful that I'm a losing my, my class because of Stevie's just talking football. Ah, so you've got to be careful with... Um, so I've got to be careful with that. So I, I'm fortunate because I've got two daughters and, and a wife I understand shoes, <laughs> and, I, and I have things called shoe logic, right? And I use that in class okay. as well. Um, and it's quite good fun sometimes watching, you know, some of the women in class go, "How does he know that?" Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, when you're, you're talking about choosing shoes for the night out and things like that, you go through that. And I use food a lot. Yeah. Okay. It was once said to me that I basically use food and football are the only two things that I understand. Yeah. I've added fashion to that as I've got older. Yeah. Um. So if I think it's useful, if I think I can get away with it, yeah, uh, then I will. But at the same time, I'll steal a lot more from my own experience and bring it into the football stuff. Yeah. Or things that I've picked up from other people, time that I've spent in different places, mm-hmm. and then bring it in. But that's that thing about understanding your audience. Yeah, absolutely. You talk you talk a little bit about the, the phrase you wrote, I wrote, wrote it down there, was help you learn. Yeah. How important is that? And how hard is it not to tell people what to do or how to do something, but actually trying to guide them? And how, how do you create that? What kind of ways can, can so if someone's listening to this, who wants to start helping develop people, mm-hmm. 
it's the easiest thing in the world to tell them, just do it this way. Yeah. Particularly if you know from your own experience, yeah. I know exactly what you're going through and I know exactly what can help you, but you know I've got to take a step back and let you get to that point without me giving you all the answers because it will fail the, the process. I think it's easier for me because I hate people telling me how to do things. Yeah. And I always have. Well, give me the information that I need and let me figure it out. Mm. Now, I don't know, part of that is I'm, I'm left-handed. So when you go into primary school in the 70s, you right-handed scissors, you know, left-handed scissors, what are those? You had mm. to figure things out for yourself. And and I, again, you were asking me earlier on about my parents. I'm grateful to, to my parents for allowing me and encouraging me to figure things out. Yeah. Um, you know, my mum's favourite line was, that's between you and your conscience. If you wanted to do something, mm. you decide. Wow, that's nice. I like that. So I don't, I don't, I, I would find it hypocritical for me to tell somebody exactly how to do something. Because apart from anything else, they're then, the next time they hit something, they're going to come back to me. Now, I go back to my laziness that I talked earlier. Mm. One of the things I say to my students, when my kids were little, Dad, what's two and two? Mm. Show me your fingers. Mm. If you understand that, you can now count yourself and you don't need to come and ask me what three plus two is. You know, you can figure it out. Yeah. And I'd much rather that I maybe show you how to figure it out. Or if you're not sure how to do it, I want to know how far you've got through it. Have you followed the instructions that you were given? Have you followed the guidance you were given? Mm. Um, or are you just coming and saying, Stevie, will you do this for me? And often as well, sometimes, you know, if you get into the habit in, 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 in management and leadership of just telling people how to do things, people will eventually start to challenge because they don't like the idea of having or having the autonomy of making their own decisions taken away from them. Or you create that environment of learned helplessness. Yeah. Yeah. Where we're not allowed to make the decisions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we, we, we what's that? Go back to the light bulb thing, the light <laughs> switch thing. We're not allowed to turn that on. Yeah. That's learned helplessness. Yeah, and that's a problem for me that's a problem because I'd rather people were showing initiative yeah How, with regards to your experience you've gone from working experience through and management experience through what you, your career before the university mm-hmm. so you're able to take all that experience because you know you've almost walked the walk so now you you can talk the talk as such but then with the football side of things okay you've mentioned about and you've even said to yourself, you've, you've dipped your toe in football management at a, at a level that's for the university. Yeah. But at the same time, when you're dealing with people who have played in Champions Leagues and Scottish or English Premier Leagues and Cup Finals and stuff like that. So does it make it easier coming from an environment where you can't physically actually be in a position to sit and tell somebody that's because you need to do it this way because you don't have that experience and it allows you to open up vulnerability and actually ask instead of telling? Yeah, I mean, plus, I, I want to know, I mean, I, I want to ask questions. Yeah. I want to ask, I want to understand what it's like. Um, I want to understand about those moments. And I, I, I do, in private moments, ask the daft fan questions. Um, I'm not going to miss those opportunities to have those conversations with people. But yeah, I think I think the fact that I've, not done it, if you like, 
means that I'm not trying to tell you that well this is the way that I would do it. Yeah. But as I say, they actually give me a lot of credit mm. for what I have done. Um, so they try and pick my brains, and they go, like, "No, but but you 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 understand more than you think." You yeah, do. yeah. Um, but I, I I tend to kind of sit back and play back my knowledge a little bit, um, and and lots of things, and ask questions so that people can start to figure it out because each person is different and each situation is different. Yeah, and the the danger of coming in and saying this is how to do it is if you've misread the situation you're actually doing the wrong thing but i mean in terms of like with with sportsmen and women they are so used to coaching from a directive point of view you know a, a tennis coach can say drop your elbow a little bit a yeah. football coach might say you need to pull inside you need to drop off your man mm-hmm. that's it so, so do they struggle with a different non-directive approach from yourself in terms of you asking them more questions and do you sometimes find at the start of these courses there is a reluctancy of them coming forward because they're so used to just being told or do you see an openness from the start? I think the people who are signing up for this, who are opting to do this, mm. have an openness in mm. them. I think if you had that closed offness, you wouldn't you wouldn't put yourself in that vulnerable position anyway. Mm. So I think that helps. I'm also aware that there's a huge responsibility on me in those first couple of sessions to create that environment where I'm asking questions mm-hmm. and I'm trying to get people to open up and I'm trying to get people to share their experiences so that they then know it's okay. Yeah. Because what what becomes a problem is if it's just my voice. I don't want to hear that. Yeah. I want the sessions that I'm trying and that's why we limit the classes to fifteen. Because that means that it's about as many as you can take mm. and still have a com- one conversation. Yeah. Um and with as you know from from your own experience, each group's different. Yeah. <laughs> and even the, the morning session and afternoon session with the same group is different because something happened when you weren't there. Yeah. So you've got to be able to read that yeah. situation and understand what's working and be ready to say to people, here's what I'm saying. Yeah. What do you feel about this? Yeah. Or can I can I ask you to help me out with this? Which is, a, I mean, that's the, 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 the semi-final of the Champions League with the Real Madrid at extra time when Carlos Ancelotti is asking yeah. Tony Cruz and the other, I can't remember the other player that he just subbed off, yeah. what sub should I make here? Yeah. And what was really interesting was like the football fan world went mental about, I can't believe mm-hmm. Carlos Ancelotti, the big man who's won all this in his career, is asking players what to do. But then what happened later was Frank Lampard and um, John Terry both came out and said, he was doing that at Chelsea, and it, but it, for even at his time at Chelsea, for the players, they found it so unsettling mm-hmm. that the guy that's supposed to be their manager and leader mm-hmm. was so willing to take a step down and actually go to them. How do you think I should do this? His book on quiet leadership is absolutely brilliant. Really, um, there's there's quite a few things. Plus, you've also got um, little bits by players through it. You know, Paolo Maldini explains what he thinks of Carlo Ancelotti as oh. a manager. Now, 
Maldini, for me, probably the best player I've ever seen. Yeah. And I will argue the toss with that with anybody. <laughs> the only one I would have a doubt with is potentially Roberto Baggio, but they're on kind of a par for me. But that is Ancelotti's way. He never raises his voice. And when yeah. he does, he worries about it after yeah. and goes and checks with people that he didn't he didn't do too he didn't go too far and he hasn't upset people and that's yeah. just his way of doing things. And I love that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, people think it's all the hairdryer treatment all this, but Alec Ferguson didn't shout at people very often. No. The people who shout all the time are the ones that you stop listening to. Yeah. Do you know why? Because you've heard it all before. And do these players know that before because they've had such an experience? You talked about write down the traits of managers that you've had positive experiences, yeah. and so did you don't do you need to explain that to them, or do they already know it? Once once you start on that particular session, there's very little I need to do. Yeah, Be, really, just guide the conversation at times. Yeah. Um, and some of the discussion, particularly if you've got a, a group of players who've had a common experience. Okay. So maybe if they've all worked for one or two people and they start off, and they, some of the stories they tell you, they're uh, just yeah. like... I can imagine. I can imagine. What? Yeah. yeah. Um, and you're thinking, how is this even possible? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where it gets quite interesting. And... But one of the things that I'm asking them is, well, what approach do they want to take? Do you do you feel an element as a football fan here, uh, a little bit, and it might be a bit self-indulgent, but a little bit of pride that maybe in the next two to five years, you'll have possibly had a direct influence on a generation potential of, of Scottish football managers and then players? My, my ideal, and I tell this to all the guys, is, is I'll know I've done my job right when I go to the Scottish Cup final and two of my students are against each other. Yeah. That for me would be the absolute ideal. Going to the League Cup final where Dave Gray leading Hibs out when mm-hmm. he was temporary manager. I I almost didn't go because of the COVID situation at the time. Mm-hmm. If we caught COVID that week, my mum was on her own at yeah. Christmas time. But Dave was leading the team out. Yeah. I wasn't missing that. And going to, going to games, Liam Craig said to me early on, he, he said he asked me a, a really perceptive question. He said, do you think you'll watch football differently mm-hmm. because of this? And I said at the time, yeah. yeah. But I didn't know how much. Mm. Whereas I'm much more interested in who's playing, what it matters to them, how are they getting on, they having a good game than the result yeah. or anything like that. I do watch football far less as a fan now. Mm. So it's taken Partic- that. Particularly in the Scottish game. Yeah. Because you've got other vested interests in it now. You've got the, on the personal level. You're seeing these people, as we were saying, you know, you're seeing footballers for human beings because you've got to see them at a completely different level than the majority of people who, who watch them every week. My mate needs a win. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I've, I've gone to, you know, I'm a hips fan um, by tradition, if you like. Um, but I have gone to Easter Road hoping the other team does well. Yeah. Because I know the guy in the other dugout and I know he needs a win. Yeah, yeah. Um so that 
that just does completely change how you watch the game. Do you see it then? Uh, I don't mean, I mean, it's hard to phrase this. Do you see it sometimes on a selfish point of view where you've got a, a like you're talking about David Gray there as a, as a Hibs interim manager leading the team out at a yeah. League Cup final. For you, I mean, obviously you've got it on the personal level, but for you to actually see somebody that you've had a, an impact on to say, to puff your chest out a little bit and go, that guy there is partly, I mean, you're not going to take full credit and responsibility, but th- there is an element where you can actually say, I was part of that. It, it's it's the same kind of, it, it is a much more quiet feeling for me because I'm not that that kind of person. I mean, even, even when I, I got my doctorate, mm. there was only one brief moment of celebration mm. just before I crossed the stage. Mm-hmm. Um, if you watch the video of the graduation, you can see a wee smile come across my face. And mm-hmm. what I'm thinking is, I can't believe they let me do this. Yeah, yeah. And that's my celebration. Mm-hmm. And in the same way as, as I take immense pride in watching my undergrads and postgrads cross the stage at graduation, mm-hmm. knowing some of the battles that they've faced and knowing that you've played a little part in that, mm-hmm. it's the same kind of feeling. Yeah. Um, and I, of course, I want them to do well. For me, it's not a case of oh, I taught him, yeah, taught yeah, him, yeah. taught him. It, it, it's it, it's it's a it's a kind of quiet thing for me. But is it a little bit of affirmation that what you're delivering is working? Um, as I'm starting to see more and more of the people that I went have gone through it moving into jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that, that, that there is a kind of this is the this is the right thing to do. This is, it's such a difficult job. It's an almost impossible job. It yeah. is an almost impossible job. And they, these guys need help. Yeah. And if I can provide a little bit of help and a little bit of support and a little bit of encouragement along the way, then fantastic. And and if we can, if we can scale it up and, and, and do more, then there's so much more we can do in Scottish football because it is so difficult. Yeah. I mean, it's also, I mean, the fact is when you go all the way back to when you spent so much time and dedicated so much into it, I mean, you even said you didn't want to know, for it to then be shelved for eight years yeah. or nine years and the heartache that you had to go through to that passion project that you put so much into, for it now to actually be working and it's going to go and then for you to actually see results that are starting to show you that it's it's happening and and now as well that there's so much scope for it to grow and further as you said. Yeah, I think it, it's it's the opportunities and it's going to be interesting to watch those careers yeah. you know kind of grow and develop. And I mean it is incredibly difficult. There are so few jobs. Mm. And not everybody what's interesting is not everybody now wants to be a manager. Mm, yeah, they're now looking at those other roles and those other ways of doing things, and actually saying, "I quite fancy doing that." Or, you know, and and sometimes they'll come in and you know, we'll meet up for coffee or we'll have a call or whatever, and they'll be like, "What do you, you know, what do you think I could do?" Mm. And I'm like, "I don't know," but it, it's kind of getting them to talk through and, and realizing that they don't want that front facing role and the pressure that goes with. Some of them do. Yeah. There's a pressure with it, I suppose. If you, I mean, we're seeing it now in football, I suppose, with the changes that you have, is 
it used to be the traditional step was if you were a good player, you would then become a good manager. Mm-hmm. And then sometimes it would be a case of, well, some of them would maybe move into the media. Yeah. But I mean, even when you look at assistant managers and now when you look at football management teams, yeah. I mean, I was done the, the Hamden Park tour and you go into the Hamden Park dressing room and there's two dressing rooms. Yeah. There's a player dressing room yeah. and then there's a coaching yeah. staff dressing room. They're, they've got their own. And it just shows you now there's not just a guy in a sheepskin jacket and, and an assistant in a tracksuit beside him. There's... There's a whole multitude there, yeah. and these positions are becoming much, much more valued to football clubs. So yeah. there's a chance for players to actually step into, as you mentioned, even on the business side of things. Yeah, and I think I think for, for guys to have an understanding of how that works and actually say, well, I'm much more interested in doing that. Um, and in some cases, walking away from football. Yeah. Um, and saying, well, actually, I don't want to do it, or doing it for a wee while and it not working out and saying, you know what, I am actually done with that. I don't yeah. need that aggravation. Um, it, it, it's, I, I think, I mean, you, you made, the, you asked the question earlier on is, you know, did my movement from one industry to another, does it help? I think it does. Mm. And I think the fact that I was at a similar kind of age as a lot of them, um, and maybe I understand how difficult, I mean, for some, in a lot of ways, the decision for me was easy. For some of them, it's not their decision. Well, it's a choice for you, wasn't it? You could have said, I'll just stay in, stay in work and, and carried on or got another job. But yep. for these guys, it literally is the, the last day they, they're, they're, they're done in that stance. And I think, I've still not figured out which is harder. Somebody else telling you that you're done. Yeah, you know, Whether it's a surgeon or you know a, 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 another manager somewhere. Or whether you're left with that difficult situation, that difficult question of, am I actually done playing? Yeah. Um, and that is such a hard choice. Well, that's another podcast. Oh, absolutely. And and that is that that goes back to that sense of identity. Yeah. Are you ready to take that step into that new identity because that part of you has been there for twenty years? Yeah. And no. that's how everybody knows you. Yeah. Yeah. Finally, I mean, it is a podcast where we, you know, we do look and dig deep into sort of communication, leadership management. The final question that I'd like to ask here is, how do you get your point across so people can understand not just what you're saying, but what you mean? What, what, how do you get that into people to express what you mean when you're saying something? I think it's a case of looking at the reaction. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember there was a there was a student in a class one day and I was talking about American football as an example of quarterback scanning the field. And Chloe said to me, Stevie, I don't like sport, I don't get sport, I don't understand what you're talking about. I said, Well I'll tell you what, check out for two minutes. Mm-hmm. I'll come back to you. Okay. Finish my quarterback analogy for the rest of the class and says, Right, see when you're at work in the cafe and you're trying to figure out what table's next. She's like, ah, oh, right, okay, I get that now. Um, I think my job is to figure out, is this person getting it? If not, what's in the way? Yeah. Now, sometimes it may be them getting in the way. So the fact that, that some people hate me because I gave them a hard time for being late, that, that's not something I can fix. That That's on their side. If it's a language thing on my side, is, a, is another way I can explain it. Is if it's a, an analogy thing, can I find an analogy that works for them? 
Um, I'm open to somebody coming back to me later on and saying, see a couple of weeks ago when you said, mm. can you can you kind of go through it again in a different way? And for me, it's not a case of, well, here's my script and I'm going to follow it. But actually, what's your experience? Who are you? And can I find a way, can I find a common experience somewhere in all the different things that I've done to say, right, okay, yeah, can we look at it this way? And and that goes back to that that concept of helping people learn something useful. Yeah, yeah. and it, it, some of the times it's it might just be having time to sit down and go through it again. It might be time to have coffee. It might be to find out what that block is on their side. Mm. What I really like is the big shining through point here is, you know, you're talking about that analogy with the American football quarterback mm. and you're able to, to, to you know, become relatable to individuals. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it comes back to even all the way back to what you're saying about people skills, right? To start this conversation and, and being able to, to do it on an individual level, yeah. which really helps engage people more, doesn't it? Yeah. Teams are just a collection of individuals. Groups are a collection of individuals. Companies don't exist. They're a collection of individuals. Mm. Uh, crowds are a collection of individuals. Um, and I think we've got to be able to see the person. It's difficult sometimes when you're looking out at it's not a class mm. that are 70, 170, 270 individuals who've come here today with each one with a completely different set of problems, with different caffeine levels, blood sugar levels, sleep levels, everything else, prep levels, all of that. Can I give them something that they go away that's that's useful? Yeah. That will help them, whether it's this afternoon, whether it's next week, whether it's five years down the line, ten years down the line. Wow. Well, Great way to end it, Stevie. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks and, for uh, Looking forward to the first Scottish football manager to make it to a World Cup finals that has come through, <laughs> come through your training course. I'll, I'll settle for the Scottish Cup. <laughs> Cheers. <laughs>